Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. In this episode, we'll be discussing Sandman Special Number One, The Song of Orpheus, written by Neil Gaiman, pencils by Brown Talbot, inker Mark Buckingham, colorist Daniel Vazo, Todd Klein, letterer, Shelley Roberg, assistant editor, and Karen Berger as editor. Right. Sandman special. So it is a special issue, though it is not merely a special issue. It is also a double length issue. And so we are going to split this into two episodes, but we're not going to make you wait a month. That's not something we're going to do. So this episode is coming out on a Thursday. As usual, we will publish the second part on Monday. So just a a few days. And we're just going to do some simple math here. The issue has four chapters. It also has a prologue and an epilogue. So this episode is the prologue and the first two chapters. Then we'll finish the issue next time, just splitting it right down the middle. So that is the housekeeping, but let's get to the good stuff. This is really, I think, the moment that I have been waiting for, Brent. We didn't do this on our introductory episode because we didn't want to spoil things for people. But I think if you had asked me if there was a single issue of The Sandman that I was most excited to cover, this would have been it. And having read it again, also again and again, in fact, over the last few weeks, my love for this issue has not diminished. In fact, it has only grown. I'm really jazzed for this. So let's just get straight into it. The first page of this issue begins with three panels at the top, and they show a human head floating in the sea. But this head is not dead. It is clearly making use of its mouth and its eyes. And here's what Gaiman writes. He floats alone upon the wine-dark sea. He looks around for his love, but she is not there. He calls her name. Eurydice. Eurydice. And at this point, then, we know that this is Orpheus, if we didn't already know that. But the text continues. There is no reply. For reasons he does not understand, this distresses him mightily. He begins to cry. Salt tears run down his face, mingling with the salt of the waves. It comes to him, then, that he must be dreaming, and he smiles. Father? And then... We see Dream there. He's present in Orpheus's dream. And the landscape, or or dreamscape, maybe we should say, shifts now to a Greek temple at night. The two of them talk. Orpheus is naturally disturbed by his dream. He asks his father to tell him what the dream means. Dream, of course, will not. And he says that it is because of two reasons. One is that it is beneath him. And the other is because Orpheus is his son, with the implication being, I I guess, that he wants Orpheus to live his own life. But the big takeaway from the conversation, at least for me, Brent, is when Dream says this. Dreams are composed of many things, my son, of images and hopes, of fears and memories, memories of the past and memories of the future. And then Orpheus asks if Dream is trying to say that this dream that he has had is uh, something that is going to happen to him in the future. We, of course, know that it is, but Dream here just says, perhaps. And so for me, I think the question is, is this. Brent, do you think that Dream knows what is going to happen to his son? I don't know whether Dream does know, because we see elsewhere in the comic that Dream cannot tell the future. He does not know what's going to happen. I think to me, it's more, and we can talk about this as, as it goes, particularly in the second part. Um, it might be more dreams kind of indifference in that his son is just 
almost like a manifestation of the dreaming in its own way, where he just, at this point, particularly pre-imprisonment, dream is fairly dismissive of others and things will happen as they happen. And that's the case. And dreams are important, but maybe they aren't. And so I read this as dreams indifference versus dream definitively knowing what will happen. Uh, but it, did you have different thoughts on that? Well, I think it is a, a, a question here. I I like your answer, although I'm not sure that I would maybe phrase it or, or, or frame it as indifference, meaning I, I just don't care enough to interpret your dream for you, though that also seems to be the case. I mean, he, it is it is beneath him, right? And we'll we'll talk about how he says that in just a moment. But I think what you're really driving at here is that he he can't. That where he's saying dreams are sometimes made up of visions or memories, really, right, is the word that he uses, memories of the future. It may just be the case that dream knows that that's part of the ingredient that goes into the dreams that that conscious creatures, sentient creatures have, but he himself can't maybe tell which parts those are. So he's not able to, to do that. Though, I guess if that were the case, I would like him to have said so, right? It seems like that's the thing that you would say to someone who's saying, you know, can you tell me if this is a dream about my future? To say, no, actually, I can't. Like, I just I just don't know. On the other hand, dream is pretty proud and maybe doesn't want to admit there are things he can't do. <laughs> I think definitely dream does not want to admit what he can and can't do, particularly in his own realm. I think you're right there. Um, but, you know, thinking of his realm and Lucian's library, I mean, Dream's library that Lucian maintains is probably the way Dream would think of it. You know, here's a collection of all the stories that were never written. You know, in many ways, we also have kind of intersection, intersecting kind of a, a, a multi multiverse of stories that exist here. So in some ways, like any particular telling of any one of what they actually experience or certainly – when we're talking about mythological figures, they themselves kind of are stories themselves. And so in that context, whenever we're talking about Orpheus in this comic or when we're talking about some of the gods we visited in, in Season of Mists, there's an element to them that is, even if they are real, so to speak, there also is kind of the story element of their existence. And so in that part, there are books perhaps written about them. Um, you know, we're to take it at this time, perhaps that the books about Orpheus are maybe not written, but maybe they already are. The library is so vast that maybe those exist in some ways. And in that way, there's any number way of telling the tales. But I think this is something for us to maybe revisit in part two a little bit when we get a little bit more interaction here, because uh, I think there certainly is a lot going on in this father son dynamic or lack thereof. Right, and that that's actually what's going to bookend the the whole issue, as I think you are you're you're hinting at here, Brent. One more thing I want to chew on just a tiny bit before we move on to well, chapter one really, is the manner in which Dream says that interpreting dreams is beneath him is to say that he is not a hedge wizard, right? Orpheus <laughs> is asking him to do the things that hedge wizards do, which is just a great a great phrase. But what really jumped out to me here is simply that we have heard Dream use. I don't think hedge wizard, but we've heard him use hedge magic before when he's talking about Roderick Burgess. He says Burgess captured him by using hedge magic. And it just seemed like an interesting callback for Gaiman to be making here. I think part of what's being signified here is Dream is a snob, right? Dream is <laughs> a horrible snob. And so he's dismissive of, you know, him calling Roderick 
Burgess a hedge using hedge magic is a way to undercut the fact that it, it, it did the trick. Like he didn't capture death, which he wanted to, but still he captured you. So you want to undercut the fact he was able to do that by making it appear like it's a lower than thing. It's definitely establishing that there are kind of a class or order to things. The endless, we've seen this before where, you know, he has very specific views of particularly when talking to mortals. He is very clear to point out that he is above when he talks to particularly desire. He switches that story a little bit. And so perhaps he tells on himself, but Generally, interaction interactions with mortals, particularly which his son is at this point, right? Um, he is pretty dismissive of it, um, and he also, you know, hedge wizards, hedge magic. I think it partially is trying to juxtapose it against kind of a well studied, well learned kind of magic of your you know traditional long white beard spends a lot of time in university. But I think that it is true to Dream's character. Oh, it's 100% true to Dream's character. And in fact, you know, we've really only talked about one page so far. Uh, we've called him proud and a snob and just generally been pretty critical of the way he's speaking to his son here. And uh, that is not going to change as we go on. But let's do exactly that. Let's go on here. So all of that was the prologue. We turned the page. Now we are told that we are in chapter one of The Song of Orpheus. And it is Orpheus's wedding day. He's going to be married to Eurydice. This also, I guess, really is the point where, as a reader, a first-time reader of this issue, you're definitely now certain that this character you have met before, Orpheus, right? We've met him before in Thermidor. We are in his past now, right? That this story is taking place before Thermidor. This is taking place in ancient Greece. Orpheus is staying with his friend, Aristias, and the chapter opens with the two of them getting their day started, this wedding day, of course. Now, we have absolutely no need to be coy about this. Anyone who knows any version of the Orpheus and Eurydice story knows that Eurydice is going to die on their wedding day. Probably, if you're familiar with this story, you also know that it is going to be because Aristias chases Eurydice after he sexually assaults her. Aristias is 100% the bad guy of the story, and knowing this, I think, creates a lot of suspense for readers, right? Because we're here wondering when the bad thing is going to happen, not whether or not a bad thing might happen, right? And I think Gaiman capitalizes on this by opening the chapter here with Aristias. I do think as well, Brent, before we move on, we should spend a little time talking about Aristias because I have a question that I'm hoping you can answer here. Aristias is a, a real figure. He's a, a minor god in ancient Greek religion. He's a figure associated with a lot of agricultural and horticultural science, also animal husbandry, and in fact, especially beekeeping, which is something that you and I have seen Gaiman write about a lot before when we covered the case of death and honey on Patreon. But Gaiman does something really, well, it's definitely really interesting, but also I think unique with Aristias here, which is that he depicts him as a satyr. He's a half goat, half human person. I do not know of any such depiction from the ancient world where he is a fully human person. I mean, he's a god, right? But he's got a human looking body. And 
in general, I will say, because of some of the other details that we get here, it seems to me like Gaiman is actually not using the god Aristias. Rather, he is inventing a different character who happens to have the same name and also fill the same role in the story. And the question I have for you, Brent, is simply this. Surely there is something about this choice in either Klinger or Bender that you can share with me. I think that part of why Gaiman did this was there's a couple different, you know, partial tellings of, you know, the story of Orpheus and Eurydice. Eurydice. The, the story of Orpheus, there's a couple different ways uh, that the story has been told. One is where Orestes is chasing her um, and attempting to sexually assault her. There is also depictions that completely they completely omit Aristias. So specifically, Leslie Klinger notes that Ovid in Metamorphosis omits Aristias and depicts Eurydice dancing with naiads when she encounters the serpents. And there is some other place that I can't remember where I picked it up, um, but there was a reference to her being chased not by a specific person, but by satyrs. And so I think what's going on here is – Neil Gaiman has decided, I'm going to take Aristias, I'm going to take the idea that there definitely was dancing going on, and there definitely was chasing, and there's definitely some kind of a satyr or other nature spirit involved, and make it all one conglomerate character. Aristias, in this case, will be a satyr, even though there is no other depiction in that way anywhere um, outside of this comic that I'm aware of. <laughs> um, and so he's basically doing a composite of a number of things where Aristias gets to be the villain. We get to incorporate that and not just have a nameless group of either nature spirits or satyrs that are encountered that end up being the reason why she runs into the, the fate that she runs into with the snake. Right. It's interesting to me that uh, that Klinger has phrased this as Ovid omits Aristias, because what's really going on here is that Aristias's role in this story is an invention of Virgil. This only exists in Virgil's telling of the story, which he does in his uh, his uh, long poem called The Georgics. It's in book four, where he tells this story really as a way of introducing what he wants to really talk about, which is beekeeping. And in fact, I think you and I have actually talked about this before when we did The Case of Death and Honey, but it's been years, so I don't remember if we got, you know, if we got so into the nitty gritty there about uh, ancient beekeeping, but I know we, we addressed it at least a little bit. But anyway, Virgil's invented this. So Ovid is the one who is actually being faithful to the tradition that has been inherited from the Greeks. And and to put some chronology on that, Virgil and Ovid are more or less contemporaries with each other. They both write during the reign of Augustus, whom we have also met here in the Sandman very recently, which is to say they are writing centuries and centuries after Homer and Hesiod, who are really the, the founders of this literature as it's written down, classical literature as it's written down, but also actually a thousand years after we have evidence of the Orpheus story and other types of, of stories from ancient Greek religion depicted in images as well, none of which depict Aristias, right? So Virgil, a thousand years into this tradition, or really more, is inventing, not inventing the character of Aristias, but inserting him into the story. That's an invention of, of Virgil's. I guess what I was really wondering here was what Gaiman's process was. Was Did he have Virgil out on his desk? Did he have Ovid out on his desk? Other versions of this story, of which there are, are several? Or was he working from some kind of handbook of mythology that maybe presented these 
different accounts or did not present these different accounts, but actually did exactly what Gaiman is doing here and just kind of merged them into one and said, this is the story of, of Orpheus, even though that's actually a story of Orpheus, not the story of Orpheus, because there are, in fact, no definitive accounts of any of these stories from ancient Greek religion. There are always uh, variations. In fact, they are they are all variations. There is no no original theme with variations. It's just all variations. Yeah. And, and to answer that question, he had both Ovid and Virgil in front of him. And in fact, in discussions with Highbender and the Sandman Companion, um, he says... Um, he gathered up four different translations of the story told by Virgil and by Ovid and employed everything I could remember of the Latin I learned in school and then recast bits <laughs> in my own words. So, um, right. <laughs> so there are bits where he, you know, and we'll get into it a little bit more even later where he specifically is just doing a, a slight, you know, Neil Gaiman translates Ovid basically. Um, but he is basically as he has done in the past where we've seen with other texts where he is pulling together a number of sources and then weaving them together, taking the bits he likes, combining things, you know, kind of in new interesting ways, but also in somewhat believable ways. So I think that's what's going on here um, with Aristias again, where he is taking, you know, the fact that there are fawns or satyrs mentioned in one tradition or in one telling, and then in a different telling, there's this discussion of Aristias. And so he's deciding why not both? Right. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, but also then for the sake of keeping this to, you know, it's an expanded comic. We're talking about 48 pages, but still it's confined. We're only talking about 48 pages. He is having one character and one kind of bad actor who is kicking off things versus um, having to worry about like, oh no, there's a group of people. Um, it could also be that he's preserving and setting up the idea of Aristias, much as he set up Puck in Midsummer Night's Dream, in case it's a character he wants to pull from in the future. I mean, I think one thing we see throughout Sandman and is that Neil likes to set up individual, you know, characters that are defined enough in the reader's mind that then if later he wants to drop them back in any given place, we immediately recollect when we prior previously saw them and also in revisiting it can appreciate it more. Uh, having said that, I honestly don't remember whether Aristias ever does make an appearance again, but nonetheless, because Neil may only know an outline in his head, if even how everything's going to play out, um, he may not know at this point. And so I think it, I think there's a lot of smart things he's doing here where let's have a character. Um, and I think part of the reason also though, I'm thinking of puck is just because, Aristias as a satyr, very distinguished features. And it also is just more fun for, um, you know, the artist, Brian Talbot, this Kate's doing the pencils to have something that isn't just another person. It's easy to differentiate him from the other people in the panels, but it also clearly sets up, Hey, yeah, this is a, these are mythological beings. This is ancient Greece. These creatures exist here. This is before the time in which, the fairy folk have left our world, right? Things are still very much there. This is not the period, you know, well into the future in which uh, Queen Titania and company decide to depart our world, more or less. Um, and so he is a setting up the universe in which they are still very much part of this world as well. Right. And that is definitely something that we see when we actually get to the the wedding. And maybe we should go do that. And because this is a wedding, it means that extended 
family is here, and uh, I think this is going to be a lot of uh, a lot of fun to talk about. On his way to the temple where the wedding is going to take place, Orpheus meets his mother. That's uh, to say, Calliope. We of course have met her before. Dream also is here, and this is still the point in time when Dream and Calliope are married. I think that's kind of fun to see here, though. Uh, the, their their marriage is not going to survive this issue. And the other thing that we need to say here is that Dream is, well, he's not going by Dream here. He's also not going by Morpheus. What he's going by is Oneros, which is the ancient Greek word for Dream. And in fact, we see the other members of the Endless family here, and they also are all going by ancient Greek names rather than the English language names that begin with the letter D, with which we are now very familiar And this is awesome. In fact, I will say it is doubly fun. But before we get to the double fun part, let's just do the first fun part, the single fun part. I I guess I've lost track of that (laughs) metaphor there. But at any rate, what I'm trying to say is let's meet the members of the Endless we already know. Death is Tolute. Despair is Apinoia. Delirium is Mania. Desire is Epithumia. And Destiny is Potmos. But... What's really fun here is that this is happening before this prodigal brother we have heard so much about. This is all happening before this prodigal brother has left the family. And so that brother is here and he is a Lethros. Now, Brent and I know full well what the English language D name is for this character, but it does not appear in this issue. So we are not going to say it, or at least we are not going to say it definitively. We're not going to call him by that. We're going to call him a Lethros during this, uh, this episode. But this is an ancient Greek word that is usually rendered into English as destruction. I'll just give you an example. It's all over the Iliad and the Odyssey in the phrase Iposelethros, which translators almost universally render as headlong destruction. Okay, so Alethros is here. This is the first time we're seeing this character. I think we need to pause here, Brent, and, well, talk about Alethros, and maybe we could start by talking about just how he's depicted here on the page. So I was reading Hanging Out with the Dream King, no relation to this podcast, which is a collection of interviews that Joseph McCabe did with Neil Gaiman and a number of contributors about Sandman. Um, And there is a a great interview in here with Brian Talbot. And in the discussion of this issue, um, there's a couple uh, bits that we learn. One is that there's some discussion about Brian Talbot's illustrations just writ large for this. And he does um, mention that because we were sitting in ancient Greece, he was able to actually start doing his own research about how to depict things well in advance of getting the script because he was able just to start looking at Greek architecture. But as to the character of Alethros, he said the only other character that was inspired by a real person was, and then he names him as Destruction, This was Destruction's first ever appearance, and I did several sketches based on Neil's suggestion of the British actor Brian Blessed. So um, there he specifically uh, was working off of making him look like Brian Blessed. And that's what Brian Talbot went with. And that's frankly what I think he succeeded with, because this is the character that came to mind. The character actor that came to mind for me was Brian Blessed when I was seeing this. I was very much seeing him um, as you know, at the time, contemporaneously, we were seeing in a lot of Shakespeare adaptations, either filmed stage productions or, you know, theatrical film releases um, is kind of how I was thinking of him. 
Right. He's a he's a big guy with a massive red beard. He's got you know, bright red hair as well. And he clearly speaks loudly. He has this massive laugh. I, I think I would probably describe him as aggressively Scottish. Uh, he's also <laughs> clearly using the words, you know, lassie and laddie here. And so it seems like, uh, you know, a caricature of a boisterous Scottish person here, right? Which is an interesting choice as well, given that this is a story that has taken place before anyone ever could have been Scottish. Uh, so that's a choice that I find interesting. We'll have more of that type of choice uh, when we get some more on death a little bit later in the issue as well. And Leslie Klinger provides a snippet from the script regarding the character. And Neil says in the script, our first ever glimpse of destruction and people have been waiting for him for about 20 issues. So we better make this good. I imagine him looking like your sketch or roughly he's laughing loudly, uproariously, good humoredly big and bearded with bushy eyebrows and tremendous bulk and presence and no fat, a lot of weight on the forehead as if he has to do a lot of hard thinking as if he'd lead with us with his forehead in a fight. In looks, and perhaps in laughter, he's loosely based on Brian Blessed and Henry V and Black Adder. A huge, dominant presence you simply don't want up against you in any kind of fight. Nor trying to outdrink, eat, curse, or swive you in the celebrations that follow. There's also that strange quality in the smile. The teeth are almost too white, as if his smile, when he smiles, illuminates the room. And sometimes the smile is genuinely friendly. And sometimes he's the only one who can see the joke. Yeah, I love that. And that, that Henry V that he's talking about there, that's the, the Kenneth Branagh Henry V from 1989, in which Brian Blessed plays uh, Exeter. That remains one of my favorite movies of all time. That was my real introduction to Shakespeare, which is uh, a, a journey I have not stopped and uh, real grateful for that. I'm glad to know Neil Gaiman's a fan of that movie as well. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe we should cover that someday. But that's uh, putting the cart ahead of the horse for sure. Let's talk a little bit more, Brent, about how he looks when he's in his costume. We have focused on what his face looks like, but when we first see him, we don't see a face at all because he's wearing a massive helmet. And this is an ancient Greek helmet. It wouldn't actually be appropriate for the time that this is taking place, but it you know looks ancient Greek to us. And so that's, that's fine. It looks like the type of helmet that people would have worn when they were uh, telling these types of stories and, and so on and practicing this religion and so on. But the question that I have for you about this, Brent, is, is he really meant to look like Ares, do you think? Or, I mean, and specifically here, I mean, like the comic book version of Ares. There's no indication that I have seen in any of the discussions with Neil Gaiman or Brian Talbot that he specifically was to look like Aries. But as I think you're alluding to Glenn, when I first got to him and saw the panel, even just now, like I knew Aries didn't show up at the wedding. Um, Cause I've read this before, but he does look very much like Aries is often depicted, particularly in the wonder woman comics um, with this pseudo Greek helmet, but also this, later period kind of large breastplate um with kind of pauldrons although the pauldron the double kind of uh, animal head pauldrons are not something that i think we've ever particularly seen on aries in the comics um but oftentimes there is a horn motif somewhere else in the helmet or elsewhere um and so i struck it as maybe it's supposed to be akin to and make you think of something similar to that um, or it may be relying on the fact that there are maybe similarities that Ares 
at least the personification of what Ares is supposed to represent, also in the comics, than just the figure of Ares, versus what maybe Alethros is supposed to represent, that in some ways maybe Ares is supposed to be a paler imitation of Alethros, in which he is kind of Alethros' like younger brother, or Alethros is more often like, you know, Ares is the person who's following Alethros around and wants to be just like him when he grows up kind of way. Um, <laughs> and that might have been intentional, but I, I, I've i seen nothing to indicate that. So it's all just headcanon run amok. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, first of all, what you think of that, but also what our listeners may think of that. I, I guess what I'm thinking about here is something that we just encountered in our issue about Augustus, right? Where Augustus confuses dream for Apollo. Dream says, yeah, that happens all the time. I mean, he's not nice about it. He's a jerk about it, but he says, yeah, that happens all the time. I think probably the same thing is happening here. But what I find interesting about that is that Gaiman doesn't do that with any of these other members of the family, right? Where we don't see death looking like some ancient Greek depiction of of death. But I guess the one that I would have most thought that would have happened with would have been desire looking perhaps like Aphrodite in some way. And there's just no Aphrodite-ness at all around, around desire here, just not looking at all like any depictions of anything from ancient Greece. So yeah, it's really only Alethros that this has uh, been done with if we, if we discount dream, which we don't get really in this issue, but we know about that from uh, from previous issues. So yeah, I, I guess I was sort of expecting them all to kind of look a little bit akin to or, or appear as a doppelganger for some Greek deity, but that's this is not what they did with all of them. Yeah, it is interesting that Alethros is the only one who seems to be more period appropriate than some of the other ones appear to be, particularly, as you said, with Desire. This does not look like any kind of traditional representation of Aphrodite, although I think in part that could have also just been to differentiate Desire from the many other more traditional you know, human-looking, long-haired beauties that we're supposed to be encountering in this comic with um, – Eurydice and with Persephone later and others. Like it's just it it would it'd be too much of the same. Um, but there's also some, which we'll get into a little bit later, there's some interesting kind of winking at and kind of callbacks to call forwards, I guess, to like modern America slash Britain slash, you know, Western Europe kind of fashion senses of the late eighties and early nineties going on with desire plus like a, you know, David Bowie kind of star on her face from kind of a, you know, 1970s era Bowie. Like there's a lot of things going on with desire here. Um, and there's a lot of decisions made regarding delirium and kind of the, the, the way that she is depicted and destiny always just looks like destiny. He doesn't change. Yeah. I mean, I think literally, I think it's just the same robe he's been wearing for billions of years. Yeah. Um, I think the the only thing notable of Destiny is, and this is probably not the first time we've seen it, but I feel like this is one of the first times we've seen – I don't think it's the first, but I think it's maybe only the third time we've actually seen more of his full face where we actually get to see his brows instead of just like his cloak is covering his eyes you know, in shade so much that it's all in darkness except for his mouth and part of his nose. Uh, so we get more of a – you know, here's a, actually his, his face in which he looks um, – Kind of like Augustus in some ways now that I, I look at it, but uh, yeah. 
<laughs> All right. I think there's a fan theory there. We'll uh, we'll see if it we'll see if it holds up. Well, yeah, you mentioned delirium. I, I think it's important for us to stop and talk about delirium a little bit here as well. And just to emphasize, this is delirium. It is not delight, right? We know that there used to be delight, and then delight became delirium. Somewhere previously, I had speculated that this transformation was more recent than this, and that it was either connected with the departure of Alethros or was a symptom of high modernity. But neither of those is the case. It's not clear what does cause that transformation at this point, but clearly this is thousands of years in the past. This is, um, well, it might be about 4,000 years in the past or 3,500 years in the past, right? So it's uh, this is something that happened a long time ago. It has nothing to do with either of those things that I had previously posited. And really what it means is that the point at which delight became delirium is prehistoric. It's something that happens before humans have writing. And uh, that's just not something I expected. Yeah. And I think um, when we talked about this before, we're almost set up to believe that the leaving of Alethros and delight becoming delirium were in some ways connected, that either his leaving was the cause or that there were both symptoms of a different cause. Um, cause that's where it's presented to us. Um, and I don't know, and I have not seen any evidence of this. So, you know, likely Neil did not have that thought in mind, but there's also a chance that at a certain point he changed his mind. Um, and maybe he wasn't entirely sure. So it'll be interesting to see kind of what more we can get about delirium. Um, in kind of appearances. Um, she seems slightly more lucid than I think the last time that we saw her when we were talking about Emperor Norton. And so perhaps the more we move to modernity, the further she gets from delight and the more she gets into delirium or mania as it is presented here. Um, but it's kind of hard to say. Uh, I do have to say, I like the fact that despair is pre- kind of presents as more uh, ambiguously gendered perhaps here and not necessarily just having traditional feminine gender characteristics the way that we previously have seen. Um, I like to think that, you know, we have decisions that have been made that desire is going to be androgynous um, and the others have kind of stereotypically fall into one or two kind of gender identifying norms. But I like here that we have a little bit of variety in terms of how despair appears. Um, not a lot, but just a little bit. I also particularly like the decision that was made. And I don't know if it was a Neil decision in the script or Brian Talbot made the decision. We needed the pencils of having one of her eyes be look as if it's, you know, clouded and, 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 um, and perhaps blind. Um, I think that that is, a really powerful addition to the way you can depict despair that I wish retroactively had been done maybe prior to this point. Right. Despair here in this image also has fangs, uh, like like lower fangs that stick out over the, the, the top lip, right? Yeah, almost like tusks. This is actually something that we saw in Three Septembers in a January as well, but we didn't call attention to it. Just uh, We just didn't did not get to that in the in the episode that we did on that issue. So this is maybe I don't know. Change is not right, but it's a it's a new way of depicting despair in art that we've been getting in uh, some very recent issues here that I also like. I like that despair is starting to look not just stranger, but also more 
more dangerous. I think that uh, this is a take on what despair is like as a, a feeling, as a, a state of being to experience, and that it is dangerous. It has sharp teeth, right? It's not just wallowing, but that it is kind of predatory in a way. I do also want to briefly talk about um, some of the the wedding itself, and we're probably going to get to this in a minute, but um, earlier in the story, there's the discussion with Aristias in which uh, Orpheus explains that there's not going to be a bunch of extra kind of trappings of a wedding ceremony that Aristias would expect there to be. There will be wine and there will be like dancing and, and music, but there won't necessarily be other things. And Leslie Klinger points to Ovid here and um, says that the wedding festivities, according to Ovid, were not well favored. Quote, truly Hyman there was present, but gave no happy omen, near, neither hallowed words nor joyful glances, and the torch he held would only sputter, fill the eyes with smoke, and cause no blaze while waving. The result of that sad wedding proved more terrible than such foreboding fates. And there's a couple things going on here. So I think in the original, or, you know, the Ovid retelling, it might be that this is just foreshadowing what's going to happen. And, you know, but I think the decision here that Neil provides that Orpheus is deciding to have a less traditional wedding and to not have some of the additional trappings is Orpheus not kind of sticking with all of the traditionally expected customs the way that his father would have. So to me, this is setting up a very big difference between father and son, where there's no way that if Morpheus, you know, and we don't, we had to have not seen, we, we see at this point that he is married to Calliope. We do not see what their wedding looked like. My guess is it had all of the traditional bells and whistles that you would expect. Um, it'd probably be an insufferable service to sit through if you were a guest, <laughs> frankly, um, having been to longer weddings versus shorter, uh, big fan of shorter. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, it, it, it's interesting to me. And I just wanted to mention before we get too far, and I know we're going to talk more about the wedding celebration itself, but th there's a lot of traditional trappings that Orpheus has decided to not have for his wedding to, um, Eurydice, um, versus what again, his father likely would have. Yeah, specifically, it's the sacrifice of animals, which is a huge part of ancient Mediterranean religions, basically everywhere that you find them, right? The sacrifice of animals, really, really important. Orpheus is not going to do that because Orpheus loves animals. And this is an important part of the Orpheus uh, story, the Orpheus, I don't know, mythos might be the word to, to use here, right? That Orpheus is associated with this story about Eurydice, though that may actually be a real late uh addition to the Orpheus story. We can talk about that probably next episode. But the, the thing that Orpheus was most known for really in the ancient world, as opposed to our world, was his love of animals, his ability, well, and not just animals, but nature in general, his ability to communicate with animals, but also with rocks and with trees, really with all living things, but also even non-living things that are present in nature. And so he is something of a nature divinity or maybe a nature hero. There's a lot of overlap uh, between him and Apollo, also a lot of overlap between him and Aristias as well. When Christianity comes on the scene, or at least after it's been on the scene for about a century or so, when we start really seeing depictions of Christian uh, beliefs and Christian practices in art, Christ is often depicted as 
Orpheus. And in fact, Christ as a shepherd is often confused with Orpheus in this pastoral capacity and, and vice versa. And, uh, that's something obviously Gaiman is dealing with here. I don't know that even someone in the ancient world who really loved animals would forego sacrifices like this, but it does suit our modern sensibilities of what someone with those values would would choose for their wedding and so on. And yeah, I think it's a really nice touch. But yeah, let's go talk about this wedding a little bit more, Brent. And really, the wedding here is dealt with in just a few panels because... Of course, what we're really here for is the reception. The Endless do not stick around for the reception, except for Death. And Death says that the others all had to leave because they had important things to do. You know, they're the Endless after all. But she also says that she is staying here not because she wants to hang out at the wedding reception, but because she also has things to do. And of course, we all know what that means. So now we see Aristias getting drunk and he's dancing. Orpheus is uh, not just the groom here. He's also the entertainment, right? Orpheus, uh, famous for his musical ability for playing the lyre and for singing. And so that is what he is doing here to entertain the guests. And now it is really just a matter of when, right? When is Aristias going to try to rape Eurydice and therefore cause her death? And Gaiman is awesome here at drawing out this suspense, building up to this moment. Though, I will say, from my perspective at least, it was a bit like watching something awful happen in just extremely slow motion. But we do get to this part of the plot. Eurydice escapes Aristias. She flees from him. But in doing so, she steps on a venomous snake. The snake bites her, and she dies just about instantly here. And now we go back to Orpheus, where Death is standing next to him while he's playing his lyre. And then we see Death fade away, and then she reappears over the body of Eurydice. That brings us to the close of chapter one. Nothing surprising has happened here. People are coming to this issue knowing at least a version of this story already. But even still, even coming with that knowledge, this is still absolutely heartbreaking. Reading it this time, Brent, I was really struck by well, two things, but I think maybe I'll just point out one right now. And it is how much this had to suck for death, because death clearly knew this was going to happen, right? She says, I'm staying here because someone is about to die. Presumably, I mean, there's actually some hint of this in the text, but presumably destiny knew this as well. This has to suck. I I don't want to go to a wedding where I know that the bride or the groom is going to die at the wedding. I, I'm going to decline that invitation, I think. Also, it's the death of your nephew's new wife. So it's, you know, we've seen that death has familial kind of love going on, at least with her brother Dream. We assume that there is maybe a similar relation, although sometimes perhaps fraught with some of the other siblings. And so knowing that this is going to happen at a wedding sucks knowing it's going to happen at a wedding of someone who you probably saw be born. And there's a reference to death visiting, which we'll get to um, people when they're first born and then seeing them grow up and really like, you know, this is not, this is the times in which like, you know, if you and I have encountered death, it, it's only been once that we don't remember briefly before. And then we will see her at the end versus, if she was family, we'd see her at the barbecues, right? We'd see her at the gatherings around some holidays. We would, you know, you know, tag each other's Facebook posts, right? So this is 
probably a more personal loss to her. And in fact, there's no indication necessarily that another offspring of a member of the family has had to deal with this sorrow directly because we haven't encountered any other definitive like they are the child of, you know, member of the endless to watch them grow up and then fall in love. Um, you know, you can imagine the first time that, you know, Orpheus decides he's going to bring Eurydice to like, you know, the family Thanksgiving dinner or equivalent thereof. Right. <laughs> and like he proposes that night and maybe she's there kind of, you know, there's a lot of things going on for this person who is joining your family to then be like, Oh, as soon as they join the family, they're going to die. Yeah. There's a lot of sadness there. Um, and I think that, um, the script as well as the art does a wonderful job of conveying, you know, death has a role to perform, but this is one of the sadder presentations of that role. It isn't a, no, no, everything will be okay. In part because we don't get to see death interact with Eurydice. We don't get to see that discussion occur. It's just all she shows up to kind of, you know, She's teleporting in for the aftermath and then cut to, you know, a day or two or three days later, right? Right, because we usually do see death having, well, feelings, right? We see we see death as a real opposite of dream, right? Who tries to be so stoic, right? And not present any of the emotions that we know he actually is feeling. But death is someone who puts her feelings on display and seems to feel affection for most of the people who who die, right? Most of the people she's there to meet. And yeah, we it's and I think it's a great observation that we don't see the interaction that she's going to have here with Eurydice here, which then puts the emphasis on not death as this very nice person who you actually would like to meet after you've died, who's going to say something nice and kind to you, maybe even make a joke, uh, show you a floppy hat or something like that. Not showing us that continues to put the emphasis on the tragedy of this, right? And the 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 trauma and well, frankly, the the despair, right, of this moment. And thinking about it in those terms, I really enjoyed reading this issue again for the first time in 20 years, right? So I'm in my 40s now. And last time I read this, just easily do the math, I was in my 20s. And all the other times that I had read this issue, I really focused on the tragedy of the romance, right? The romantic element of this story um, on Orpheus, on Eurydice, the tragedy of her death here. And as a middle-aged person with a, a family now, I found myself really actually quite focusing on the characters on the other side of this. So really feeling some pathos for what death and maybe to a lesser extent destiny are going through here at this wedding. But especially I really focused here on Aristias. I mean, I guess I had a whole host of questions about Aristias already, but previously, when I had read this in my 20s and, and as a teenager, he really was just there as the catalyst for the death, and I didn't really have a whole lot of interest in him. But here, I find him quite interesting. I mean, he's awful, right? I mean, he runs around saying, oh, I meant no harm. You're not going to tell anybody, right? And it, that's just disgusting, right? He's a despicable, despicable character here. And to bring this back to something that you said earlier, Brent, in thinking about Gaiman's decision, actually, to include him here, where he's only he only exists in one source from the, the ancient world, is that 
I think that so much of what Gaiman is doing here in The Sandman is actually exploring things that we might label as villainy or evil or perhaps just awfulness. I think he definitely sets up that it's not, you know, to set it up that there is a particular villain who is the reason why Yurichi is anywhere near snakes, right? Because <laughs> generally speaking, hey, if if you're planning a wedding, here's some wedding advice from Brent and Glenn to you. Um, if you're planning a wedding, make sure the reception, particularly where dancing may occur, is not near where snakes like to nest. That that's been some <laughs> wedding advice from Brent right, and Glenn. Right. Yeah, I got married outside in rattlesnake country, and uh, that was that was on the list of things we had to do. <laughs> yeah. So the the decision to set him up as a villain of why Eurydice was running away. That, you know, she was trying to get away from, you know, someone who's trying to sexually assault her, but also that she was a well out bounds of where the fire is, of anyone being able to be anywhere near there. The fact that then Orpheus is not there to witness her be bit, that there's not an opportunity for them to exchange last words. The other thing I want to briefly mention, though, is the decision that I feel like is being made with Eurydice, Eurydice herself here, which is I feel like Neil is giving her more – she is more of a role in, in kind of and, – and is not just kind of a plaything. She's not simply someone who happens to be at a wedding and then happens to get stepped on. Like she sees that Aristeus is somewhere else, you know, wants to go talk to her. She makes a decision. Like despite the fact that terrible things happen to her – we do see her making decisions for herself, and we do see her, you know, successfully fighting Aristeus and then successfully running away. So we see Eurydice actually have her own agency in a way that she often does not in the story. In the story, Eurydice is often the foil to set up why Orpheus is going to go on his hero's journey and ultimately fail, but it'll really have nothing. To, she might as well be like, oh, I lost my favorite trinket and it happens to be in hell. I need to go. Spoilers. He's going to go to hell and get it. We'll talk, we can talk about this a little bit more when we really are closing out the issue at the end of our second episode on it. But this has been something that modern and really very contemporary to us retellings of this story have liked to do. They've liked to zoom in on the character of Eurydice, sometimes even swap the roles and think about what all of this is is like from well the other other point of view here, or at least the other uh, the perspective of the other character in this story. And I think you're right. Gaiman is doing quite a bit of that here, right? He's not completely doing this. This is a story about Orpheus, and especially because he is the son of Dream, right? But yeah, nonetheless, Gaiman is actually quite interested in the experience of Eurydice in ways that ancient writers were, were, were less so. Well, let's move into chapter two now, and we open with Eurydice's funeral. Orpheus is there. He's nearby, we'll say, because he's definitely not attending the funeral. What he's doing is watching it from a cliff. And then he sits on a rock and begins to play his lyre. And what he's playing is called The Song of the Gate. And he does sing this as well. So it is truly a song. And it turns out that this is a magical way to open a gate to the dreaming, or at least a gate to Dream's palace in the dreaming. This is not 
an ability that we have seen before. And I wonder, Brent, if you think that any skilled musician could do this, or if this is something that is unique to Orpheus. My interpretation is this is unique to Orpheus. I don't know whether it's unique to Orpheus because he is Orpheus and he can compose such beautiful music and such beautiful songs that he can both compose and perform, or if it's also because he is the blood of his father. Like, I don't know whether he could go and use this gate to visit the threshold in Desire's domain or whether it's just, no, I, I always have the keys to my parents' house kind of thing. Um, so I believe either, frankly, that the one this is just like, you know, part of his blood is from the dreaming from his father. And part of it could also just be that he can sing so beautifully that it literally can tear a hole. It's not the, open an, a hole. I get open a gate literally is what he's doing. Open a gate <laughs> to the dreaming and go to there. But it's also just, I mean, it's also symbolic of like really good music can be like experiencing, you know, the beauty that can come from like some of your fondest dreams, right. Of just like listening and experiencing that. So I imagine he's just telling reality. No, no, I'm going to fashion the dreaming in kind of manifest it in a way just in this space that I can transit to. It also made me think a lot of the Ocarina of Time though, which came a couple years later for <laughs> Zelda um, because uh, I was listening to that music recently. Um, and for some reason, because when I played that game, um, it will always have a place in my heart. So I think that probably when I saw him stroking the lyre, I substituted in the sound of an Ocarina, which is not, probably really fair but yeah that was my interpretation do you think it's that it's the power of orpheus because he is orpheus or do you think it's the power of orpheus in part because he is partially dream what do, what do you think yeah i think it's got to be because he is partially dream and i guess the evidence that i would use for this is to say that one we are going to find out later in this issue that he can't by himself do what you've just suggested, which is open a, a, a gate to the other domains of the Endless, or at least he can't do it to get to Death's house. He doesn't try to get to the threshold of desire here, but he does try to get to Death's house. He doesn't know how to do that on his own. We'll get to that part later. So I think that's one point of evidence there. But the other is just that we, I guess, know that dreams, creatures, sentient beings who are dreams can leave the dreaming but they also can go back, right? And just thinking about Gilbert here, right? So during Dream's imprisonment, Gilbert leaves the dreaming, and then Gilbert goes back when he wants to intervene to save Rose. We don't actually see him make the journey from our world to the dreaming, because we're just already present in the dreaming, focused on Rose, when Gilbert shows up, right? But presumably, Gilbert has done this with you know, so, somehow it's possible he did this, right? We don't, we don't know. I mean, I think he probably didn't do this, but yeah, I think that you're probably right here that there is something that if you are a dream or half dream, that you have some ability to gain access to the the dreaming in some way. And it may be the case that Orpheus has to do a little more work here because he is then also half human here. So he's got to have a little more focus on this. This is not some kind of uh, immediate, just innate superpower that he has, but is actually a skill that he has to perform. I don't know if we'll ever get any more data on this such that we can, you know, see this sort of thing happening again. But I think that's definitely my sense of it. No, I think you're right. And I briefly 
but it's forgetting the fact that we see him having to journey by foot quite a ways to get to uh, Death's apartment. And so clearly it seems to be because of the dream connection. Although the comment that you made about Gilbert raises an interesting question for me. Glenn, do you think that Gilbert had to tell part of a Father Brown story to return to the dreaming? <laughs> that might actually be what Gilbert has to do. His version of the Song of the Gate is actually uh, Father Brown in the Mystery of the Gate. <laughs> is an oral storytelling thing that he has to do to uh, get a gate to open. I would love for that to be true. I suspect I suspect it's not, but I would love for that to be true. All right, well, let's go talk to Dream here. Orpheus walks through this gate and he appears outside of Dream's palace. And here in this issue, the palace is done in a classical style of architecture. We have the guardians present. We've got uh, the griffin, the wyvern, and the, the hippogriff here. They have some kind words for Orpheus, but Orpheus, well, he's a jerk about it. He's clearly entering the anger stage of his grief here. There is some plot happening in the conversation between Dream and Orpheus, but I think first we should talk about Dream being, well, also being a jerk here, though perhaps in a different way than his son was just a jerk to the wardens here. Dream scolds Orpheus for not going to Eurydice's funeral. Then he tells him that Eurydice is dead, but Orpheus is alive, so Orpheus needs to just go live his life. And I think that we all know that this is not the right thing to say, right? I mean, definitely, <laughs> if someone told me this after my wife or my child died, I would be done with that person forever. And uh, if I were giving letter grades to parenting here, I'm giving Dream an F-, and that might be a mercy grade. Uh, this is terrible. I have a question for you on this. And I think for me, the how you answer this question may answer whether it's an F minus or it's just like an F. Is it that when we see dream in the dreaming here and we see that the wind is blowing very strong and his cloak is tattered and his hair is more of a mess than usual. It's not a carefully placed mess as, as Robert Smith might tell us. Um, if we, Juxtapose that to when we see Dream on the first page and the cloak is not tattered and there is no evidence of any kind of wind. There's no windstorm. There's no horrible weather conditions. His hair is intentionally made to be that way because decisions. Do we think that – do you think that the way that this is being depicted in terms of Dream's cloak and in terms of the environs around where he is standing are because – Dream is feeling a torrent of emotions, perhaps sadness, that he is not at all relaying in his words. I will give you – we're talking about an F grade. It's just whether it's an F minus. Are we giving him a zero or are we giving him like a 50? And is it that he's not saying the right thing, but he still is very much feeling things and in his own way grieving the loss of his new daughter-in-law? Or is Dream and the Dreaming appearing this way because this is Orpheus viewing things in some ways it's we're seeing things through his lens and so we went from initially he was concerned because of the dream he was having on page one but then he was talking to his father and still everything was still because he was dealing with his father and his father is cold and still and that's not great but he doesn't know any better um because he's never had a good father um, versus here where everything is a mess because this is the outward reflection of how he feels, that his dream, his experience of the dreaming is reflective of him. So I think how you answer that question helps depict whether we're talking about whether dream is 
a terrible father or a really, really, really terrible father who never should have had kids. Right. Yeah. It's extremely, extremely windy here, right? In the depiction, we see this even in the, the braziers with fire, the, the flames are also blowing in this, in this wind. It's actually, I think, really part of the appeal of these scenes, the visual appeal of these scenes for me. I think this is a great question and I'm not really sure what my answer is. If, you know, if in terms of, do I think that this is reflection of dreams, emotions? Do I think this is a reflection of Orpheus's emotions or, you know, just, just a reflection of the landscape or maybe dream was flying a kite before Orpheus showed up or something like that. I'm not quite sure what the answer is. I, I suspect that dream is feeling some pretty intense emotions here, right? I think we know that although dream does put this stoic face on, he's actually a pretty stormy person, right? This is what makes him Byronic, right? He's essentially a, a kind of brood hunk, right? That he has these stormy emotions, he's brooding all the time, but he doesn't express or at least doesn't state his feelings to people. He doesn't actually treat people in a really empathic way, even though he himself is tempestuous in his own emotional life. So I think that's my sense of what's going on there. But yeah, for me, this does not raise his grade from an F minus to an F at all. Having feelings is, you know, not really what good parenting is is about, right? In fact, frankly, good parenting, as I experience this same challenge every day of my life right now, I think making the good parenting choices most of the time involves me putting my own feelings to the side to do what is right for my child here in the in the moment. Oh, I don't disagree with you that he is a terrible parent either way. But my read on this is that Morpheus is subconsciously distraught and frustrated about what has happened. And he is manifesting this kind of storm conditions within the dreaming and his own cloak is tattered because of his process in the grieving, which you know, he lost his new daughter-in-law. That's not anywhere near the same plateau of losing your new wife, right? Um, and so he should stop thinking about himself and focus on his son. I 100% agree with you there. However, I think that if this was Orpheus affecting the dreaming, then he Morpheus would probably not brook that nonsense because um, he would be frustrated that his son would – to do anything that would affect him. So I think that dream is distraught, but also he is so rigid in that like, no, there are rules and you know, you get one life. That's what my older sister says. And when your life ends, that's all you get. And so she goes on to where she goes on to, in this case, the underworld, that's what happens. You need to accept that rules are rules, my son, and move on to the next thing, which is not where he should be as a parent. But I also think that what we are seeing is that he is not unaffected by the loss of Eurydice. He also is not at the funeral. We don't know who is. We don't know if any member of the family is there because we don't get to see it. But we know that Dream's not there either. And in that way, again, not a good parent, but – he is also kind of suffering um, and feeling a loss as well and grieving, you know, to a lesser extent than Orpheus. But when it comes to grief, it's it's often not a good idea to spend too much time trying to compare and rank who should feel what. So I somewhat forgive he is terrible here because he is not in a place to realize how 
he, he is kind of suffering his own grief, colorblinded by his rigid application of then there's the rules when it comes to mortals. And we have already seen that their relationship is complicated because we, of course, are getting this story in some sense as kind of a a flashback or or you know backstory to the character of Orpheus, whom we've already met in the late 18th century in Thermidor, where we know that they have not spoken. Uh, they, meaning Orpheus and, and Dream here, have not spoken in a long time. That Orpheus longs actually to have a relationship with his father again. They don't have that, so we know that their relationship is fraught. That's happening now. Uh, I would have actually liked, well, I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I lament that we don't get it, but it would be interesting to actually see what was their relationship like, you know, five years ago? What was their relationship like when Orpheus was three, right? What was, what was that like? I would like to to see that. I don't know. I'm just going to put that on the list of things to request from Neil Gaiman if I ever get to see him at a con or something like that. Yeah, we want to see what it's like for uh, uh, Morpheus with a newborn Orpheus. Does does he does he equally help with changing diapers, or does he just like crack a beer and tell Calliope like, "No, you got to take care of this. I, I'm I've got I've got sorry, I gotta go. I gotta go deal with the thing. Lucian needs me in the library. I can I can hear Lucian calling, um, or whether he is equally shouldering the responsibilities he should be as a parent um, at that point." <laughs> Right. Well, they're uh, they're the wealthy elite of the speculative fiction world, so I think they have a host of nannies. So that's a good point. Uh, boy, <laughs> boy, this is a sitcom I want to see, though. <laughs> I want to see Merv Pumpkinhead having to deal changing Orpheus's diapers all the time. I assume that that would fall under their responsibility. Well, let's not go too much further down this uh, bizarre rabbit hole that we have dug for ourselves here. Let's go get the plot beat in this conversation. Orpheus simply does not accept Eurydice's death. He wants Dream to go talk to Hades and Persephone to ask for Eurydice back. Hades and Persephone, of course, the the rulers, the the deities of the underworld in ancient Greek religion. And uh, I should also actually just maybe note here that Orpheus doesn't actually say Persephone. He says Cori, but Cori is another name for Persephone. Now, Dream is not going to do this. And when he says so, Orpheus announces that he then is no longer Dream's son, and he storms out of there. Orpheus now is going to take his own life so that he can be with Eurydice in the underworld. We should note here that the ancient Greeks and Romans did not envision an afterlife in which people continue to exist as persons, just incorporeal in some way. The belief here is that you really become a shade with no memory of who you were as a living person. Orpheus knows this. He says as much. But he's going to do this anyway, except that Alethra shows up and stops him. And Alethra, I would say, handles Orpheus's grief better than I think Dream did, though it may still not be the best way to be handling <laughs> this, this grief. But in terms of the plot here, Alethra suggests that if Orpheus wants to cheat death, that maybe he should go talk to his aunt. You know, death. And uh, that's a good idea. And Alethros is going to send Orpheus to death's home. And so... You know, this is where we know that Orpheus can't use his music to open gates to the realms, at least of death. But I'm I'm going to extrapolate here that it is to the realms of other members of the Endless. But we also learn something else here. At least I think this is the first time we're getting this, Brent. And this is that we all meet death when we are born, as well as when we die. And in fact, Alethra says, we all get to have a conversation with death when we are born. This is a really fascinating idea. 
Yeah, it, it's a really fascinating idea. This is the first reference we've had of this. Um, and what we don't get is all we get is that none of us seem to remember it. We don't get what's said. What's what? What's that meaning about? And my guess is, in some ways, you know, Neil Gaiman is a storyteller. The medium he usually is expressing himself through is often contained in you know, physical media, particularly at this point in his career. So it's, you know, pages of paper uh, with a front cover and a back cover. And so I look at it as death literally bookends our life. Um, but it's also in my mind, and I'm wondering what you think of this, the idea that when we encounter death, that no matter who we are, it's a comfort when we actually meet her and we, we don't, we may be fearful of what comes next as we've seen, but we are not a scared of her. And it feels like, well, if she is the first person we're meeting and so we're connecting, you know, the kind of feelings you would have with kind of, you know, maternal figure upon first meeting them, that there is deep embodied in our subconscious, the idea that like, this is a person who is, we, we've, we, we recognize them and we feel comfort in their presence and that that allows us to then feel the comfort when we see them at the end. What, what do you think of that? Yeah, I think that that is absolutely right, that she welcomes us and then she's there to help us when it is time to exit as well, right? She welcomes us to the stage. She helps us leave the stage. And we do then have this, some kind of memory of her and so she feels familiar, so we feel good, right? We feel okay about about death. And that is, for the most part, what we have seen depicted, even though we have seen characters uh, begging and pleading, trying to negotiate for a little more time and so on. There's not, that, that, that's more of a clinging to life rather than some kind of hostility. It's certainly not, uh, we haven't seen anyone expressing any kind of like terror at the presence of death or something like that. And this is, well, I'm just going to use the word interesting here again. This is an interesting way to depict death. And specifically what I mean here is that we call this character death, that so far what we have known is that it is her job to gather the spiritual part of your persona and usher that persona into some kind of afterlife once your body has expired, right? But that seems to be then actually only 50% of what her job is. The other 50% is not death, it's it's life, right? But yet still, her function in the universe is not life. It is, it is death, right? That that's what she's being called here. But really, she... Her, but really, her function might be more to, you know, yeah, as you said, bookend, right? To bookend the existence of, of life and, and really is maybe less about serving as death. Yeah, she's helping define for a given creature its existence on both ends. Yeah, I'm absolutely fascinated by this. And death is a big figure in this story. And so presumably we'll get more of her in The Sandman. And uh, hey, also, she gets a couple spinoffs. So <laughs> maybe we'll cover those someday. <laughs> but certainly this is the first time so far in reading The Sandman where I'm really yearning for that, right? Where she seems to suddenly be much more robust. Of course, we haven't really gotten to talk to her yet, but we are going to actually get to talk to her. But before we do that, we want to take a moment here to let listeners know about something that we are doing on Patreon. And that is covering, well, another Vertigo comic series, not the death spinoff, but we are covering the comic series Sandman Mystery Theater. We're not going issue by issue as we do with the Sandman proper, but we are covering the story arcs in single episodes. 
Last autumn, we released the first of these, and we will have another one soon. Brent, this has been a really interesting, I think kind of exciting side project. How would you describe Sandman Mystery Theater for people? So Sandman Mystery Theater lets us look at the Golden Age hero, um, and it's a very different experience than the Sandman comic, but but we also get an opportunity to discuss you know, what themes are similar, what are different, and what kind of makes that character unique compared with other superheroes, particularly superheroes from the Golden Age. This isn't Superman. This isn't Batman. Um, there's a lot more kind of thematic elements going on with him. And I, I just want to take this time to, to thank all of our patrons for helping us support all the content that we bring and make available for everyone. Uh, such as this episode, but also helping support us doing these extra bonus episodes like Sam and Mystery Theater, like the Swamp Thing stories that we've covered before, um, and any number of other things that we've done. We, we really appreciate all the support. We do. And of course, our, our Patreon supporters also do a lot to determine the content that we do across the, the network, including the episodes that we do here when we're in between story arcs of the Sandman. And I should say as well that, in fact, it was a suggestion of uh, not one, but two Patreon supporters that we uh, actually cover the Sandman Mystery Theater because they pointed out that uh, Dream and Wesley Dodds are going to meet in something that we are you know, contractually obligated to cover here on the main show. And so we need to do our homework and uh, we've been having a lot of fun doing that. So we do hope that you will join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Media to come with us for this series. But all right, now that we have teased quite a bit about death, let's actually go talk to death now. Orpheus shows up in her home. And uh, as you have teased and hinted, Brent, it is an apartment. It, it, it's a modest American apartment circa 1990. There's a comfy chair. There's an end table, a, a family photo on the wall. There's a teddy bear, a floor lamp. There's a coffee mug, a fishbowl. There's blinds. There's light switches. And Death herself is wearing her black jeans and black tank top, right? The way that we see her in the present of the Sandman. Orpheus, as you would expect, is very confused by how everything looks, and he even says as much. Death changes it all up then once Orpheus says he's confused and uncomfortable here. And so now she's wearing, I don't know, something I would describe as a kind of Victorian dress. But her home looks like a terrifying lair. There's no furniture. There's no windows. And I cannot help but share Orpheus's reaction to this, Brent, because, well, I'm not confused about, you know, what uh, an American apartment circa 1990 looks like. In fact, that might be kind of my happy place, it turns out. But I'm confused because it suggests here, right, that death can see the future as well. Not just who's going to die soon, right? But that she can do something that we might think of as time travel, I guess. I interpret this whole page before she goes to the, let me set it to something you'd expect, Orpheus, as actually breaking the fourth wall. That at this point, the reader, you and I are seeing death as we expect to see death. And Orpheus is very confused because he, that is not, you know, he saw death at his wedding, did not appear like this. He then, you know, when she's like, oh, well, let me do something you're more accustomed to um, and what you might more expect. And it's different to me. This is a breaking of the fourth wall where death does not directly turn and look to panel to look out at us, but she might as well be in this way. I think she's acknowledging like a connectedness with us, the reader, which 
would be disturbing except for its death. And therefore I find it comforting because I met her before and I just don't remember it that well. Right. And I'm going to meet her again and I'll be happy to see her even if I'm not happy about the situation that I'll be in. Um, and so that's my takeaway of this, but it is fun to see Orpheus's kind of surprised, confused expression, the dirty laundry, the well-worn seat. There's a lot of things going on. I do also want to call attention that there's the family photo, which photography, uh, Orpheus doesn't know what the hell he's looking at there. He doesn't know when he's looking at one of the lamp, right? Or any of this, but also from what we can make out, that looks like it's delight in that photo, not delirium, um, which means that photo is something that either is, you know, artistically rendered later via, you know, some kind of animation or painting, or it's a photo that death took with a camera long ago. (laughs) Right. Yeah. There's definitely some, well, something timey-wimey is happening here, right? It is not clear what it is that's happening. It is unsettling. I don't have a clear answer for this. I think your answer that this is meta-textual in some way, right? That it's breaking the fourth wall, that this is the moment in the story in which it's clear that we, the readers, are part of the story and that we are reading a story, even if the fact that it is a story doesn't mean that it's not true, right? I think that is what's what's happening here. But nonetheless, it is hard for me to, to make this all square, right? To square this circle, so to speak, here, where I want to build up the, the, the rules of this speculative universe, understand how things work. This, uh, this really challenges not just my conceptions about what the rules are, but uh, maybe my conception of whether or not there even are rules to this universe at all. It made me very uncomfortable, but it's a it's an it's a type of discomfort that I think is really excellent. Orpheus in some ways is experiencing the shock somewhat of actually entering a realm that is foreign to him. And so perhaps the best way to actually depict that is this, given that he is a being who is encountering and the norm to him might be normal things of Greek myth at this time, right? That's just as normal every day. So let's have something that's even more startling in some ways and also quite a bit different from when we get to see him later in the underworld. I think it's going to be too easy to just be like, well, wouldn't death's place look like Hades and look like the underworld? And it's like, no, we don't want to do that. Um, I do say, I do want to say though, when they cut to her saying, is this any better? And she changes the, the environs. I really like some of what the art is doing there where you can't quite tell. There's like an optical illusion of like which pillar is in front or behind which other pillar that's in the background. There's just a lot of fun going on there. Um, and I think that. To the extent it's covered in the script, Neil, um, but then certainly the uh, artist had a really fun time, I'm sure, with these two pages. Right. Yeah. I think the way that I would describe this is that it looks like a uh, carnival funhouse if it had been designed by goth carnies. And uh, it's terrifying. I mean, it's uh, it's terrifying, but also I want to go there. Yeah. No, I mean, this is I, I think Tim Burton should have a room like this in his house. Exactly. In fact, this probably probably has shown up in a Tim Burton movie. I just can't think of which one it is, but uh, that's another project that we can go do someday. Well, let's get to the conversation here. Death also tells Orpheus to get on with his life, though I will say that I think she's quite a bit nicer about it than Dream was. She also says that she cannot give him back Eurydice because her job is to take people to their afterlife. And 
once people are there, those people are no longer in her purview. And so at this point, Eurydice belongs to Hades. But instead, Orpheus now asks Death to send him to the underworld, right? To the realm of Hades. And he says he can take it from there, basically. But Death says that there is not any way to get there except to die. But Orpheus objects, and he cites here the case of Heracles, or Hercules, as we usually call him. And Heracles famously went to the underworld as the last of his 12 labors. What he had to do there was to bring the multi-headed dog Cerberus up into the living world, which he accomplished. But here in this story, Death says that Heracles did no such thing. He just went on a drunken bender for two weeks and then told everyone that he'd been to the land of the dead, but it was all made up. It's all a lie. And this is actually probably a good place to note where we are in the timeline of the stories that we know from ancient Greek religion. The main point that I want to make here is that Heracles and Orpheus are contemporaries. In fact, they were both Argonauts, as in Jason and the Argonauts with the business with the Golden Fleece and Medea and so on. And that is an adventure that has already happened by the time that this issue begins. But both Heracles and Orpheus, they lived before the Trojan War, before the time of Odysseus and Achilles and Agamemnon and so on. And so Orpheus cannot cite the example of Odysseus and the underworld yet here, nor Aeneas for that matter, which in fact will matter later on. Uh, But all right, that was really all an aside here just to orient us a little bit. Let me get back to what actually matters, which is that death agrees to help Orpheus get to the underworld. All she has to do is grant him immortality, which of course we have seen her do before with Hob Gadling. And now we know why it is that Orpheus does not die even when the Mynads rip off his head and why in Thermidor, he is still alive, just existing as a severed head. That, of course, is getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. What Death does now is tell Orpheus where the entrance to the underworld is, and then also tell him not to go. But of course, he is going to go, and we will take that up in the next episode, because this is the end of chapter two. The only comment I want to make is that I feel, as you mentioned, both Olethros and Death do a much better job than Morpheus does in talking with Morpheus. However, they both kind of treat him the way like, you know, uh, an older generation might pat a younger generation on the head, particularly like a teenager and be like, you'll get over it. I know it's tough, but it'll be fine. And to him, it must come off so patronizing and so it must it must enrage him so on top of his grief to be so dismissed by not just his father but here you know Alethros his you know seemingly favorite uncle maybe um and by you know his his aunt death um and but it's also somewhat a commentary on the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice because we don't get any stories really about their courtship, not much. So it's it's also just a matter of like, you you didn't really know her. You seem to care a lot because that's what the story's about, about him caring a lot. But there's not the evidence of like, you didn't do like that great a job making the wedding all that great. Like, <laughs> it's just now that you have an excuse to be angry. Um, you're going to be angry, which is not to say he isn't justified in his grief. But it also may be that he's 
you know, mugging it for the camera a little bit. Um, and in that way, maybe he is his father's son where he is just going to make it about him as opposed to making it all about, you know, not going to her funeral. So how much of this is actually about Eurydice versus about you, Orpheus? Right. Yeah. This is what Elethra says. He says, you're, you're more in love with the idea of being in love than you actually were with Eurydice, which I think is perhaps a bit unfair, but also not entirely wrong. And I think, and he also even uses the word romantic here, which I think he, he means with a big R sense, right? That we're thinking about the uh, poetical worldview of people like Byron and Shelley, Wordsworth and, and Coleridge and and so on. And we certainly have used Byronic, right? As a term to talk about dream before, I think it applies to Orpheus here as well. And yeah, the apple not falling far from the tree is perhaps exactly what is going on here, uh, which I think was kind of at the heart of your question too, which was who's causing this wind, right? <laughs> which of these brood hunks is causing the wind here? Well, I think on the note of brood hunks and other types of Byronic heroes, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our other podcasts at claytemplemedia.com. Please join us over there on Patreon for the Sandman Mystery Theater coverage that we'll be doing. We will be back early next week with the conclusion of this issue, the Song of Orpheus. And so, until then, pleasant dreams.